We'll hear argument next in case 079995, Rivera versus Illinois. Mr. Levin. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the petitioner lawfully exercised a peremptory challenge on juror Dolores Gomez. As a result of the erroneous denial of that challenge, Ms. Gomez wrongfully sat on the jury and lacked authority to render a judgment. Petitioner's conviction should be reversed automatically <clears throat> for three separate and independent reasons. First, trial before an unlawful adjudicator is structural error. Two, the wrongful seating of a juror is structural error because the effect of the error is impossible to determine. Are you putting, are you equating this with a biased judge? I mean, the, the category of structural error has been kept very narrow by this Court, and it seems to me that a juror who is perfectly qualified, who it, conceded, it, it is conceded could not have been dismissed for cause, is quite a different matter than a judge who has taken a bribe or who has a monetary stake in the case. It, it seems quite a stretch to apply those decisions to, to the case of a juror who was qualified and it was just a judge who was over-exuberant in denying the peremptory challenge. Well, our unlawful adjudicator claim is not dependent on a finding or showing of bias. A, a, a juror who is illegally on the jury, jury, who does not have the authority to serve, would render the jury uh, improperly constituted. Therefore, uh, there would be structural error for a jury illegally constituted to render, render a judgment irrespective of bias. Okay, but your whole argument that the, that the, that the juror was illegally sitting and the jury was illegally constituted is, a, uh, in effect, a, a statement of the effect of state law. And the state Supreme Court doesn't think that's the effect under state law. Uh, so it seems to me that the, the whole premise of your argument, that there is something inherently unlawful about the seating of that juror, is simply, um, in, in effect, denied by the state Supreme Court. And we take our law from them. Well, Your Honor, there are uh, state law and federal law components to this issue. Uh, petitioner had a lawful right to excuse Juror Gomez under Illinois Supreme Court Rule 434. But, but no, no constitutional right. No constitutional right to the peremptory challenge. Well, there is a, a constitutional right to due process involved that we — But you, you, in effect, are saying that any violation of state law with respect, let's say, to criminal trial procedure, becomes, if not remedied, a due process violation under federal law. That's, that's, that's your, your unstated premise, isn't it? No, Your Honor. The, uh, our argument is very narrow in scope, that if a, a juror that is illegally constituted renders a uh, verdict of guilty, then that uh, jury is an unlawful adjudicator, and the unlawful adjudicator claim is what triggers the right to due process. There could be a thousand reasons why, under state law, a particular jury is improperly constituted. So you're saying whenever the state, under whatever state laws it has, says that the judge made a mistake about who to put on the jury, 
that that violates the Federal Constitution. Just, just as an example, and uh, to follow up on Justice Breyer's question, and then you can answer his question, uh, many states have uh, rules that you have to be a resident of the county to serve on that jury. And suppose a juror thinks he or she is a resident and gets the county line wrong or doesn't know what residence requires. Under your rule, um, what's your term, unlawful adjudicator? And then we have, the, we have a, a, a federal constitutional standard uh, that re- requires structural error for any state, uh, uh, for any violation of any state, state rule. It's just as prior's question. Well, with respect to jury qualifications such as age and citizenship, there's a very uh, delicate screening process that goes into effect. So uh, the problem of an unlawful adjudicator with respect to, say, age would be a very, very rare phenomenon that would rarely occur because jurors who are too young to serve, perhaps under 18 years old, would never make their way to the jury pool in the first place. So it would be a very well, rare situation. You're, you're avoiding the question by saying, oh, don't worry, there are not going to be many violations of this sort, and then you pick out age. But Justice Breyer began his, uh, the, the preface to his question was, was that there are, are, are manifold requirements uh, varying from state to state. <coughs> well, let's this, take this your, a, What you're, you're giving us is a sweeping proposition, A, for the constitutional principle that you're setting forth, B, uh, for the supervision and intrusion it would cause federal courts on the state system. Well, if we take the jury qualifications that were discussed in the state's brief, it would appear that all the qualifications that are discussed there, as I said, it would be a very rare situation indeed for a. But why? A, uh, one qualification is a jury can't be a juror can't be prejudiced. All right. I think it's a very common thing for prosecutors and uh, uh, defense lawyers to get into arguments about whether a particular juror is or is not prejudiced. Okay? So sometimes the judge excuses them, maybe five million times a year, and probably in a certain percentage, maybe 5,000 or 500 or 50,000, the judge is wrong. All right? So the state appellate court says he's wrong. So the jury wasn't made up properly. Now, you're saying in every one of those cases that violates the federal constitution. I've never heard of this before. It may be there's some precedent for it. I don't know. That's why I'm asking. Well, Gomez versus United States set forth a principle equating the right to an adjudicator with lawful authority to preside at every critical stage of the proceeding. That means that held, we've held in that case, I better look at it, that, that in any instance where excusing a juror violates state law, that that's a violation of the Federal Constitution. Which is the case that says that? Well, that, that case uh, did not involve jurors, Your Honor, but it did involve a magistrate who lacked the authority to preside over voir dire, and the Court held uh, under general principle of law, equating the right, uh, the, the lawful authority right to the right to an impartial j- jury and used the phrase a basic fair trial right meaning that the right to a lawful adjudicator is a basic fair trial right. And also, in addition but, but you're not you're not suggesting, because you, you can see that there was no basis for a four-cause challenge, you're not, um, you're not saying that Gomez was unqualified or that she was biased. If she was biased, you had a basis for that, she could be excused for cause. 
Well, there's a reasonable possibility of bias with respect to Gomez because of her extensive contacts with gunshot victims at Cook County Hospital. But she was an administrator. She wasn't a nurse. She didn't deal with people who had gunshot wounds. Well, the Illinois Supreme Court held that defense counsel strike of Gomez was a valid reason to have her removed from the jury. She could have, even though she said, uh, even though she was not challengeable for cause, the peremptory challenge is there for a purpose, and that is to... need a good reason for a peremptory challenge. The the, if I understand... It's the whole fun of a peremptory challenge. You don't need a good reason. Well, the purpose of the peremptory challenge is, is to uh, help to create a fair and impartial exactly. jury. And, and for some reason, I just think this person is not going to vote for me. I don't know why. I just don't think so. I don't want this person sitting on the jury. That's all the reason you need. That's right. Uh, under, under Swain versus Alabama, peremptory challenge can be exercised without having to state a reason. Well, that our footnote in our later case uh, authored by Justice Scalia uh, indicates considerable doubt as to the uh, viability and to the, to the correctness of that formulation in Swain. Well, with Martin Sal- Salazar, I think. Was the yes, Martinez Salazar. Um, in its footnote four, uh, determined that the automatic reversal rule in Swain was subject to reconsideration due to the advent of harmless error analysis. But I was citing Swain for a different purpose. I was citing Swain that uh, for the purpose that a peremptory challenge could be exercised without having to state a reason. That's a fundamental. No, no, I thought you were citing Swain, and I, I think you're going to have, have to establish that peremptory in this to win your case. Uh, that there's a constitutional basis, a constitutional right to exercise a peremptory challenge, at least, and then you can have a subset of that when the state gives it to you. But uh, I, I think Swain no longer stands for that proposition. I wasn't citing it for that proposition, Your Honor. We have the case of Evans versus Lucy, for example, where the court was analyzing the right to an appeal, and the court found that the right to an appeal is not of constitutional origin. But once the state had created the right to an appeal, it had the obligation to administer that right consistently with uh, fundamental fairness and due process. So here we have a peremptory right that the state of Illinois wasn't obligated to create. But once it adopted that peremptory right, it was, in effect, adopting the long, venerable tradition of peremptory challenges that's existed in this country since the founding. But, but the — well, first, how many peremptories does, does Illinois law allow? Uh, for, non, for non-capital cases, it's seven, Your Honor. Well, suppose a state allowed only three peremptory challenges. Wouldn't be nothing in the least unconstitutional about that, right? Well, under Russ versus Oklahoma, the state has the uh, authority to regulate peremptory challenges. And, and this uh, was uh, number four, was it? I'm sorry? This, the challenge to Gomez was the number four peremptory? Yes, Your Honor. And as it, so if the state had only three, which it could do, there would be, would be no basis for removing Gomez from the array, that is, the the, uh, defense would have already 
exercise three peremptory challenges. She's number four. Too bad. That would be the end of it, right? Well, it's it on the jury. As to our unlawful adjudicator claim, that would be correct, because if the defense did not have a peremptory challenge to exercise in order to strike Gomez, if the peremptories had run out, but then it's just there something, would something unseemly about saying, because a state is generous in its peremptories, you have a grand constitutional argument to make, even though there's no constitutional right to any peremptory challenge. Well, the state uh, is obligated, consistent with due process, to provide that which it promised. And if well, it prom- that goes back to the, the point which you rejected when I suggested. I suggested earlier that you were, in effect, arguing that every violation of a state statute in this criminal context amounted to a due process violation, and you say, no, that's not what I'm arguing. It seems to me that that is exactly what you just said to Justice Ginsburg. Well, what makes the peremptory challenge unique is its venerable tradition since the time of black. Well, we were talking about peremptory challenges before, and we're talking about peremptory challenges now. Have you changed your position from, from the position you stated in answer to my question? Well, the, if I understand correctly, Your Honor, the, the case involves peremptory challenges. Look, the, the, the question that I thought I was asking and I thought you were answering was this. Do you claim that every violation of state law uh, in, in the, we'll say, in the, the selection of jurors uh, uh, is, is automatically, if not remedied by the state, a federal due process violation? And you said, if I recall correctly, no. It seemed to me that in answering Justice Ginsburg's question just now, you were saying yes. You said a state has to act consistently with due process. And so so are, do you stand by the answer you gave me, uh, or is it in fact now your position that every violation of state law that goes unremedied becomes a federal due process violation? No, I'm not saying that every violation of state law, if unremedied, All right, then why does this one become a due process violation if it's unremedied? Because this one involves a, a state violation that resulted in an unlawful adjudicator. Let's take it. No, but that, that, that then goes back to an earlier question. It's an unlawful adjudicator if state law says so. Federal law says you don't even have to have peremptory challenges. Uh, you don't even have to have a process for winning, winnowing out the Gomez jurors. So, in effect, uh, if, if you're saying uh, that there is something unlawful about the seating of the jury, you're making a statement of state law, and the state Supreme Court disagrees with you, which seems to me to foreclose your argument. Well, the state disagreed with our position as to the federal automatic reversal law. The, the court applied, and we would argue misapplied. No, but the, the, court of the, the Supreme Court of Illinois did not find anything unlawful about the jurors sitting. They said, yeah, the, 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 peremp should have been, the peremptory challenge should have been respected. But they did not say, and it seems to me they clearly rejected the notion, that there was something unlawful about the jury and unlawful about that jurors participating uh, in reaching a verdict. Isn't that correct? I would read the Illinois Supreme Court opinion. Uh, specifically, what they did state is that uh, the trial court was incorrect in denying the peremptory challenge. Right. Therefore, that juror uh, should not have sat on the jury. That right. juror is wrongfully on the jury. Therefore, no, no. The, the, the peremptory challenge should have been respected. 
But the Illinois Supreme Court did not say, as I understand it, that by allowing the juror to sit, the juror was acting in an unlawful capacity or that there was something unlawful under state law about the jury's action and the jury's verdict. Am I not correct about that? Well, the Illinois Supreme Court one made one statement that it was wrong, the peremptories wrongfully denied. Now, as far as elaborating on its reasoning, um, Well, if they thought that tainted everything that happened afterwards, uh, it seems to me, they would have said, therefore, uh, the, the verdict's no good. No, uh, because the, the court misapplied this court's precedent in, in Nader and Martin <coughs> Salazar. That's the basis for the court affirming the conviction. It had nothing to do with the issue of whether or not yeah, but it had everything to do, it seems to me, with the issue of state law. Regardless of whether they applied or misapplied a precedent of ours respect, with respect to federal constitutional law, it seems to me that the, that the uh, Illinois Supreme Court has to have meant it was okay so far as the validity of the verdict is concerned for this person to participate. The Illinois Supreme Court found that the verdict was valid because they thought that the error was subject to harmless error review in relying on Nader and Martinez Salazar. So ultimately, there was there was there was no error under state law that needed to be corrected. Well, there's an error in terms of the um, adjudicator, Ms. Gomez, being seated on the jury, and under Rule 434, uh, petitioner had the right to a juror that. Uh, that was not subject to a peremptory challenge. Gomez was wrongfully seated on that jury. But so far as the ultimate jury verdict was concerned, the Illinois Supreme Court, I understand it to have said, was there is no error that needs to be corrected under state law. I don't read the opinion that way. I read then why didn't they correct it? Because they thought that the error was subject to harmless error review under federal law. And we would argue the two... You, you mean, in other words, you read the, the, the Illinois Supreme Court as to say, this is a violation of our statutes and constitution, a violation that would, uh, would entitle this person uh, to have the, the, the verdict set aside and a new trial. But because the federal practice applying federal constitutional law is to engage in harmless error analysis, we won't correct our state law error as a matter of state law, uh, and, and we will, in fact, apply a harmless error analysis that otherwise wouldn't apply because it's federal. And on that ground, we will let the verdict stand. Is that the way you read the Illinois Supreme Court? No. Uh, the Court declined to uh, determine whether a constitutional right had been violated, but the Court applied this, this Court's precedent under Martinez, Salazar, and Nader, the federal harmless error automatic reversal law that this Court has, and use that to find that the error was such a harmless re error review. The Court did not Illinois But, uh, but how, how, how could it do that if there were not some underlying federal constitutional right? I say how could it do that. It obviously would say it didn't. But what, what would be the, the principal basis for that? analysis, what would be the analytic framework that would lead it to look to the federal decisions? This is a state issue. Well, the Court did not specify why it did so, but it did rely on Nader and Martinez Salazar. And therefore, 
But we're asking you what the analytic justification for that course of reasoning is, if that is indeed its course of reasoning. Well, I, it's hard for me to speculate on the thinking of the Illinois Supreme Court, but um, well, but you have to give us a sustainable analytic framework if we're if we're going to uh, reverse their decision. Well, we argued at the Illinois Supreme Court level that due process was violated, but the Illinois Supreme Court declined to consider whether a constitutional right had been violated and moved um, accordingly to the question of whether or not automatic reversal would apply or whether the error would be subject to harmless error review. But the Illinois Supreme Court did uh, not say anything about whether a constitutional right had been violated, except it declined to consider that issue, even though it was argued at that level by, by petitioner. Uh, not only do we have a, a constitutional basis for this court to have access to its automatic reversal law, the fact that the court did rely on, on Illinois Supreme Court relied on Nader and Martinez Salazar gives this court authority to uh, reach the issue of whether or not to apply automatic reversal law under under its uh, authority to correct any misunderstanding. So the Illinois Supreme Court was assuming a federal violation when it decided what the reversal rule would be. But your federal violation determined is bottomed on the notion that there was an unlawful adjudicator on the jury. Would that reasoning apply to, in regard to one of the earlier questions? If you, you have a Cook County jury and they had a juror from DuPage County and the law says, no, you've got to have a local juror, and it turns out that they had wrongly seated such a juror, would that be an unlawful adjudicator? Yes, it would appear so if, it, if a state law stated that uh, a juror qualification requirement is that the Juror uh, who presides in Cook County must be a resident of. Well, if you, I'm sorry. I just uh, one, one And if it is such an unlawful adjudicator, it would definitely be federal constitutional error. Yes, because it would implicate the due but process would it have clause. To be, would it have to be structural error? I, I don't know why you don't argue that it's structural error when the the error is the den wrongful denial of a peremptory challenge because it is impossible for you to establish. A harmfulness of error because, as Justice Scalia pointed out, peremptory challenge is just a hunch uh, uh, on your part. You don't need any more. But if it's something like he was in DuPage County rather than Cook County, maybe that's something where it's fair to put the burden of showing harmfulness uh, on the defendant. Well, Your Honor, um, the, the state under Chapman would be required to prove harmlessness, and I think it would be impossible to determine whether this, this error would be harmful. Uh, well, maybe that's harm, true. My, my point is that may be true with respect to a peremptory challenge, uh -huh. but it doesn't seem to me to be terribly difficult to say, well, it was in DuPage County and not Cook County, so what's the big deal? Well, under harmless error review, the appellate court envisions the, re, uh, the um, actual uh, jury that rendered the verdict, whether or not the uh, error would have rendered the verdict different had it been uh, had it not occurred. And in this case, we have it, we can't analyze it from the perspective of whether this jury would have rendered the same verdict absent the error, because this jury that rendered the verdict is illegally composed. It's illegitimate. So what the Illinois Supreme Court did in analyzing harmless error review is it substituted its judgment for, for the reviewing court, uh, substituted its judgment for the, for the jury. Uh, the. But we had an actual 
jury. It's, it's not as though um, you had no jury verdict, and then, then the court would say, the court would say, um, we think that this defendant was as guilty as they come. But you had a jury with jurors who met all the state law qualifications, already made the determination of guilt. So that's a little different from the case where, say, a, a judge would attempt the equivalent of a directed verdict. Well, in this case, I don't think we can look at it from the perspective that the court normally looks at it when, when it review, uh, uh, adopts harmless error review. In the normal situation, the court looks at whether or not the error contributed to the verdict and whether or not the actual jury that rendered the verdict would have rendered the same verdict absent the error. But we don't have — we can't do it from the perspective of the actual jury in this case because the actual jury here is illegal. Do you think the Constitution prohibits a state from going further than Batson to protect against the use of peremptory challenges for discriminatory purpose, purposes? Specifically, is there any reason why a state could not provide that whenever uh, uh, that a, a trial judge always has the authority when the judge has any suspicion of discrimination to ask for an explanation from counsel as to the reason without having to establish it, without there having to be a prima facie case? Well, um, that's, that's our position, Your Honor, because um, what the trial judge did in this case is asked for a reason without having established any prima Yeah, well, that's what Batson says uh, has to be done in order to justify the strike when it's when, — but is there any reason why a state couldn't go further to prohibit — to guard against discrimination in the use of peremptories? I apologize, Your Honor. I'm not, not sure I understand about going further than uh, — under Batson, the — it's a three-step process in the state — uh, must establish a prima facie case of discrimination before uh, the judge is entitled to ask for any kind of explanation. And here there wasn't um, any kind of gender discrimination of any kind, according to the Illinois Supreme Court. Therefore, the, the um, judge in this case was not authorized to even ask for an explanation. But the explanation given by defense counsel is pretty good. But Justice Alito's question is, could the state say, as a matter of state law, whenever the trial judge has a hunch that there might have been discriminatory purpose involved, may he refuse to allow the contemporary uh, challenge? Well, we argue that the judge doesn't have sua sponte authority to... to no, but if the state explicitly gave the trial judge that authority, would that be constitutional? Well, the, the, the state has the authority to uh, have some uh, regulation of the peremptory challenge rights. So it has the authority to abolish peremptory challenge rights entirely, right? Yes. So this, it, this is not a hard question. Yes, the state can abolish peremptory challenges if it, if it wishes. And therefore, it can take the much lesser step of allowing the trial judge, if he has any suspicion, that a peremptory challenge right is being used in violation of Batson to uh, disallow it. What's wrong with that? In this case, though, we do have peremptory challenges created by the state. And, Your Honor, I would request that I res to reserve the remaining time for my rebuttal. Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Goodrow. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, there is no due process violation here, and that 
takes care of this case at the threshold. Well, does it really? Um, <clears throat> su- uh, suppose I agree with you that there's uh, that there's no federal constitutional violation. Uh, but I also think that in assessing the consequence of a state law violation, the Illinois court here was looking to federal law and was trying to apply the federal law of harmless error. If that's the situation, would we not have the obligation to determine, or would we have the obligation to determine whether it was properly applying the federal law of harmless error? Even though it it didn't have to, it chose to use the federal law of harmless error to to apply to this state violation. Justice Scalia, the briefs before the Illinois Supreme Court raised two independent grounds for automatic reversal by petitioner. One was a pure state law automatic reversal rule. The other was a due process violation that would then trigger federal uh, automatic reversal requirements. What What the Illinois Supreme Court did explicitly is say, even if there were a due process violation here, we believe as a matter of federal law that would not trigger automatic reversal. What's certainly implied, because of some, several of the questions today have suggested, what's implied is that if the Court had believed that as a matter of Illinois law there were an automatic reversal rule required, that this was an unlawful juror to the extent so profound that it voided the judgment and required a new trial, under those circumstances, the Court would never have had to reach that assumption, much less gone into any of the analysis it did. So here, the Court was faced with both claims, rejected both, but to reach the Federal claim, they must first show a due process violation, and that's what they failed to do here. So your answer to Justice Scalia's question is what? The answer, Your Honor, is that if the Court had said, we are going to lockstep our uh, federal, or, or rather, our state harmless error analysis with the federal question, the federal analysis. And whatever they say goes, um, then I would agree that under those circumstances, this court could review that and say, you've got that wrong. Well, no, what no. case would you cite for that proposition? You can't say Michigan versus Long. I can't say Michigan versus Long. Um, uh, excellent question, Your Honor. I mean, I think that, let, let me, let me. So why'd they get it take wrong? It, I'm sorry, Your Honor? Why did you say they got it wrong? Oh, I don't think they did. I was, I was suggesting But I mean, even if it were federal. I don't know. I'm asking again. I don't know. Uh, we Any- think they, uh, they analyzed it actually, <laughs> absolutely correctly as a matter of fact. <coughs> isn't this Johnson versus Standard Oil and that's, that sort of thing? Right. I mean, I should say, if, if, the court, if, the Il- if the Illinois court wanted to back away from federal law at any point, they could certainly do so. And so even if this court were to say you got it wrong federally, they could, of course, at that point say, no, we, as a matter of state law, we're going to apply a Brecht standard or a Chapman standard. Is that clear as a matter? I don't know. Again, I'm asking. Is it clear as a matter of federal law that we have lots of federal trials and in a federal trial where a district judge makes an error in excusing a juror? He shouldn't have excused the juror. There are many, many reasons for doing it. So the jury is not properly, as the defense lawyer had the right to have it, that that requires automatically a new trial. Is that clear as a matter of federal law or not? And that I, is, I, that I is don't not know clear. the answer. It's not clear, Your Honor. In response to an earlier question, they cited Gomez, and, they, and there's a line of cases, including Gomez, that are cited in their brief. Those are federal supervisory authority cases in which the Court has said, not as a matter of due process, interpreting the federal statute, in that case the Magistrates Act, mm-hmm. to conclude that. Uh, I'm not talking of, about magistrates. 
that I'm not talking that. about due process. Correct. I am asking the question of just what I asked. Now, you heard what I asked. It's about jurors. Right. All right. What's the answer? It is not a, that is not a due process violation. I know I'm not asking that question. I am asking when a lawyer, uh, when, it, when a judge makes a mistake and excuses a juror whom he shouldn't have excused because he thought the juror was prejudiced to say, and he wasn't. The appeals court says you're wrong about excusing it. Does, under federal law, the defendant become entitled to a new trial? Not under the Constitution, under, under whatever you want. I don't yes believe or so. no? I don't believe so, Your Honor. I think the answer no. is no. Okay. Going back to Justice Scalia's question, do you think we would have jurisdiction of this certiorari petition if we were convinced there was no federal constitutional error, but we're merely trying to decide whether the state court applied the correct constitutional standard in correcting what it thought was a correct federal constitutional error? I don't, Your Honor. I think the federal question, if there's one presented, is whether or not there's a threshold due process violation. And if there's none there, we don't have jurisdiction to answer, to give an advisory opinion on how the Illinois Supreme Court should run its shop. That's correct, Your Honor. So the Illinois Supreme Court can uh, happily go along blaming everything on us. <laughs> so when it stands for re-election, it says, well, we're just applying federal law. Right? Your, Your Honor, I think in this case, what the Illinois Supreme Court did is they concluded so. No, but uh, that's the consequence of your answer to that question. It seems to me there's much to be said for, uh, for the disposition that where a state court, even in resolving a state law question, uses uh, a federal uh, principle, adverts specifically to federal law, cites federal cases, it becomes reviewable. But, Your Honor, let, let me be clear. What, what they did here is they assumed the federal constitutional violation because they recognized that there was no state entitlement to a new trial under these circumstances. And so they then said, well, yes, you, you, they did make that assumption, but you think the assumption's wrong. And we th- if we think the assumption's wrong, you would agree with Justice Scalia, we can go ahead and say, well, you're running for re-election, so we're going to correct your, your errors on uh, federal law. Uh, honestly, Your Honor, I think that if the Court were to conclude there's no due process violation, it would be an artificial exercise to then embark on an analysis of a proper harmless error. This Court has said time and again that there is a close link between the alleged due process or Sixth Amendment violation and the manner in which the, due pro- the uh, harmless error analysis is conducted. In Gonzalez-Lopez, that was the gist of the de- most of the debate between the majority I, and the Senate. I would certainly agree if that if the only reason the Illinois Supreme Court used the federal harmless error rule was because it was assuming a federal constitutional violation. Once we reject that assumption, the whole thing drops out. But is that entirely clear from the opinion? Is it clear that the Illinois Supreme Court wouldn't have used the same test under simply Illinois law? Well, two points, Your Honor. First, in context with the briefs, which independently sought both state and federal remand, and page 171 of the Joint Appendix, where the Court makes clear that we're simply not going to resolve the question of whether there is a federal due process violation. I think in, in context, it does become clear what the Court has done here 
is that it certainly concluded there's not a state right. So it's proceeded to say, well, what if there's a federal due process entitlement? If that's the case, let's proceed and uh, uh, decide, well, it's harmless anyway. We don't need to then uh, reverse this conviction. Now, I will say that if the Court harbors concerns, if the Court were to conclude there is no due process violation here, but harbor concerns that the Illinois Supreme Court feels itself duty-bound to follow this Court's jurisprudence on the question of harmlessness, uh, that at that point the Court could simply make the due process ruling and remand and allow the Illinois Supreme Court to make clear what I think is already clear, but make crystal clear that they uh, would apply a, a harmless error standard to this, uh, to, to this sort of deprivation. problem is the, the only reason the Illinois Supreme Court found that there was no error of constitutional dimension, meaning federal constitutional dimension, the only reason it, it's found that is because it found that the error was harmless beyond a reasonable doubt. Well, Your Honor, I think that what they've done, they've just put the statement and yeah, 171. It's the cart before the horse. They've, they've run the analysis, and what they've done, Your Honor, is said, look, any error here of constitutional dimension would be harmless. Therefore, let's, we inform the reader on page 171, we simply haven't reached the question. Please don't read the foregoing analysis to suggest that we've made a prior conclusion that there is indeed a due process violation here. Indeed, the Court suggests there probably isn't by early on in the opinion pointing out that this Court has long held, since, since Stilson in 1919, has long held that there is no due process entitlement to a peremptory challenge. So I think in context, uh, it is quite clear what the Court has done is has said, there's nothing here for you under Illinois law. Under federal law, even if there were a due process violation, it's simply not, uh, it's simply uh, harmless error. And then you would have no objection to a remand that says, Illinois Supreme Court, you can't blame it on federal law. It's up to you as a matter of state law. And now answer the question that you didn't answer, that is, what is the consequence under state law of a, an erroneous denial of a peremptory? You would have no objection to such a remand. Your Honor, we would have no objection to that procedure, but I would caution that it seems unnecessary in light of the fact that the parties so clearly sought uh, relief under both state and federal law, and the fact that uh, the Supreme Court, the Illinois Supreme Court, concludes it doesn't need to reach the way it analyzes its uh, the constitutional question. I think that, and, and the underlying assumption that judges understand, I think it's it's fair to assume that the Illinois justices understood that they could go further as a matter of state law than federal, but not they couldn't provide fewer protections. For for the reasons that have been discussed, it may be that we won't get to the merits of the uh, petitioner's argument, assuming, assuming we do. Uh, the petitioner talks about the, uh, I don't have the, the unlawfully constituted jury. Uh, is, is, what is the distinction between the hypothetical case of the juror who isn't a resident of the county and the state says you have to be the resident of the county? What is the distinction between that and, say, a non-Article three judge sitting on a Court of Appeals panel. Why is one structural and the other not? Uh, well, and and this, would, this would be a little different than the juror uh, who might be biased or not, might not be biased, because this goes to a, a, a hard qualification. It's, it's just a hypothetical in the case, but it's, it's a linchpin to the petitioner's argument. I should begin by saying that the Gomez and Wingo and, and Wynn decisions and others they cite in that line for the non-Article III judge proposition are themselves not due process conclusions, but are conclusions as a matter of, sta- of a federal law, rather, 
The idea being that Congress simply hadn't delegated the authority properly in those cases. They're not due process cases. But if one were to assume that those would also be due process violations to have a non-Article III judge sit, I would distinguish those cases at that point, hypothetically, by saying there's a, there is a profound, profound difference between someone who lacks any and all mantle of state authority, on the one hand, and a juror who is properly sworn and who satisfies all the statutory requirements for sitting as a matter of Illinois law. And I should note, in the reply brief, there's a point at which they contend Well, well, well but the hypothetical is that doesn't, the juror doesn't satisfy the requirements because he or she's from the wrong county. Again, Your Honor, the, the, the fundamental, the lodestar analysis here in the, in the due process, in, you know, in Butte versus Illinois, the Court said they've not defined it with precision, but it's always been fundamental fairness, uh, community sense of fair play and decency. It seems to me that as you move into a judge with absolutely no mantle of state authority or um, and, uh, whatsoever versus a juror who is properly sworn, properly instructed, but who nevertheless sits from a different uh, uh, neighboring jurisdiction. And I should note that in Cook County there are three jury jurisdictions, so the errors could be legion just within Cook County in terms of being from the wrong part of the county. Uh, it seems to me that that sort of error um, simply doesn't come anywhere close to the fundamental fairness. Uh, well, but how do you, you — there's no way to tell. I mean, uh, presumably the state has a reason for restricting the jury pool to the neighborhood. I mean, that type of limitation does go back, back to Blackstone, in the vicinage of the, of the crime. So, and there's no way to tell. There's no way to tell why, whether the juror from DuPage County is going to have a different view or a different perspective or affected it uh, uh, in a particular — or that it affected the verdict in a particular case. This is true, Your Honor, but in those contexts, the very state law that has created those divisions, for whatever reason they've seen fit to do so, is the proper authority to conclude whether or not the, the, the error is so profound by having that person sit that it ought not be a violation of due process. I mean, it ought not be, it ought to be a void judgment. Indeed, that's how these, these federal cases, Gomez and the others, essentially read. That's exactly what I can't figure out. I'm trying forget due process. All right. Keep that out of your mind. Yes. We have approximately 50 state jurisdictions, the District of Columbia, a bunch of federal jurisdictions. All right. In those jurisdictions, to your knowledge, you may not know this. You may not have looked it up. What happens in the situation where a juror, where a juror should have been excused, I guess there's a new trial. The juror should have been excused, but wasn't. I guess there's a new trial normally, is that right? If the juror is biased, yes, but not if the juror is unbiased. The juror is biased, yes. Okay. Now suppose it's the defendant who wanted the juror and he was, he was wrongly excused. All right, so that's what the appeals court holds. What's the rule? Again, do they go back and look and see if it's bias? If, if, the, if the juror, the defendant didn't get the juror he wanted, somebody else took his place. So they look to see if that person was biased. And if not, say, too bad, defendant, you may have been right, but you lost the juror that you want, no, no remedy. What happens? Uh, to my understanding, I, I don't believe, I don't have cases to cite on this, but I don't believe there would be a remedy because this Court has said time and again that the peremptory right and those surrounding it do not create a right to, to any particular juror. So it, at least in the case of where he failed to get a peremptory, whether it's federal or whether it's state, the federal law and most state law is you lost your right to a peremptory, one of them, you should have had it, but you're out of luck. 
if the, if the juror who replaced the replacement, the, the juror who was there, you know, who otherwise wouldn't have been, uh, is a fair juror. Your Honor, I thought you were asking what happens if a particular juror the defendant wanted did not sit. And under those circumstances, I would say that because this Court has held. But oh, if, what about if, the last? If your question, that, that implicates really the split in this case, Your Honor, and the indirect split, that w- all of which was laid out in the cert petition. There is, there is disagreement, though we would note that much of the disagreement, some of it, is pre-Martinez-Salazar uh, uh, in footnote 4 with its remarks about Swain. Some of it is federal, and therefore you don't have uh, the same concern about a threshold due process violation. I will say, to answer your original question, though, as well, about um, jurors who should not have sat but are not deemed biased. Illinois certainly has a history of cases to that effect, and the court in the Illinois court is handled as a matter of Illinois law. The case in 1886, an alien sat, and the court concluded there was no timely objection. That was part of its analysis, but it certainly was not a nullity in the court's words under those circumstances. What, what, what was that case? This is, this is not cited in the brief, so I'm only citing in response to a question. It's a case called Chase from the Illinois Supreme Court oh, in, uh, Illinois case. in 1866. And it's a case in which an alien sat on the jury. And there was, I believe, as part of the Court's analysis, a failure to make contemporaneous objection. But they, they said it was not a nullity, to use the Court's words, to seat this improper juror. And again, made as a determination of Illinois law, just as the question here as to what remedy should be in effect is purely a question of Illinois law. Again, they've simply failed to establish a due process violation. This Court has said time and again that there is no due process entitlement to peremptory challenges. Much of what we accept as given these days depends, hinges upon that presumption, including the Batson line, as a concurrence in Miller L. pointed out in 2005, uh, numerous restrictions on peremptories that have been upheld since the 19th century, which are laid out in the government's brief. Uh, and, the, indeed, the remarkable variety among states, some of which has been touched upon today, where states, state by state, provide very different numbers of peremptory challenges, and um, they provide very uh, different uh, limits uh, thereon as well. Uh, if the judge who, who sat on a state trial was not authorized under state law to hear that particular matter, would that be a due process violation? Uh, I, th- I think the answer to that is no, Your Honor. And, indeed, as we point out in our brief, Cook County has several substantive divisions so that, for example, a criminal law division judge is not authorized to sit on a uh, family law matter, for example. And yet, Illinois law has made clear that if there's an error, if you go to the wrong court, and that's unlikely to happen in the scenario I I put forth, but it could easily happen between law and chancery, for example, and, and does indeed happen, if that were to be the case, the, uh, any error uh, in going to the wrong court and having the wrong court resolve your issue does not void the judgment as a matter of law. And I certainly don't think that would implicate due process concerns as well. If the Court has no further questions, we'd ask that you affirm the judgment below. Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Roberts. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Federal law does not require automatic reversal of petitioner's conviction because the denial of his peremptory challenge at most violated only his state law rights. And even if his federal constitutional rights had been violated, harmless error review would apply. The Constitution does not give criminal defendants the right to peremptory challenges. Therefore, a, uh, the right of a state defendant like petitioner to exercise peremptory challenges derives entirely from state law. And when the erroneous denial of a peremptory challenge deprives him of only state law right, and when the uh, state law rights alone have been violated, 
state law, not federal law, dictates whether harmless error review applies. And the violation of a state law right uh, doesn't rise to a due process, federal due process violation, unless it deprives the defendant of a fair trial. And this Court has repeatedly held that uh, states can withhold peremptory challenges entirely without impairing the right to an impartial jury or a fair trial. It therefore follows that the erroneous denial of a single peremptory challenge does not render a trial fundamentally unfair. What if it's not a single challenge? What if, let's say, each side has six and the trial judge just arbitrarily refuses to allow the defendant to exercise any peremptory challenge? We but still the juror that's the juror that's ultimately selected, uh, there's no reason to think it's not a fair jury. We still think that that uh, would not be a federal constitutional violation, um, and uh, even if it were some kind of a federal violation, that it, it would be subject to uh, review for, for harmlessness. It, if the trial court could violate due process if its actions so skewed the balance of power um, over the selection of the jury uh, in favor of the government that it uh, resulted in a fundamentally unfair trial, but even the denial of multiple peremptory challenges wouldn't rise to that level, and but certainly the denial of a single one wouldn't. Supposing Illinois had a statute that said the prosecution gets 10 peremptories and the defendants get one. Uh, the, that the raise the federal question? The question there would be whether that so skews the, the test that I said before. I think the question would be, does that so skew the balance? Isn't the answer pretty clear that that would be unfair? I don't, I don't think that the answer is uh, clear at all. The, the, the state might rationally conclude that because the government has to prove its case beyond a reasonable doubt, because it has to convince uh, the jurors unanimously to uh, rule in its favor, and because it has no right to an appeal and unfavorable determination by the jury, that uh, the prosecution should be entitled to more peremptory challenges. Of course, this case doesn't present well, I'll, I'll use that as an examination question. <laughs> Let's hope that it doesn't come up. Um, it's unlikely to, but... What, what it's about unlikely the, that it's so clearly unconstitutional. Well, we don't think that it's, that it's unconstitutional at all, Your Honor, but it's, it is contrary to what the, the common practice and the way things have been approached in both uh, federal and state courts. Mr. Roberts, you, if you do get to harmless error, how do you deal with the question that was raised by the Chief Justice? That is, there's no way in the world that you can tell whether this was harmless or not. You, you have to Imagine another juror being on the panel. That, that juror could have swung the case, could have had no influence. There's just no way of knowing what would have happened. Well, I think that rests on the mistaken premise that harmless error analysis turns on the predilections of the particular decision-maker or on, on speculation about what one juror, what one particular juror would have done differently than another. In fact, um, Harmless error, the harmless error inquiry looks at the uh, hypothetical, objective, rational juror. Uh, and so that's what you look at and the, the difference between well, the but two. But maybe, maybe you have, and, you know, the, the irrational juror, you know, the holdout is not going to convict for any reason. But, but uh, that's not an appropriate part of, of uh, harmless error analysis, just like uh, the fact that the jury might engage in nullification is an appropriate part of the harmless error analysis. If um, in Strickland I, is the best case to, I, I think, to explain how that's uh, irrelevant to the, to the inquiry, even though it's part of the constitutional there, analysis there, the Court very clearly uh, explains 
that you don't look at the particular decision-maker, you don't uh, speculate about nullification, about arbitrary action and the like. Uh, it's sort of transferable over. That's just not an appropriate part well, of I mean, our analysis. Well, even assuming your, your premise, isn't it pretty difficult to know what a rational juror would have done? Well, we think that the, the, the correct inquiry in this circumstance, given the nature of the right, is to ask whether the error resulted in the seating of a juror that was not uh, impartial. And uh, then you look at the, the, at the record in the case, uh, the voir dire uh, record, and uh, you make that determination and the government bears the, bears the burden of proof. Um, so we don't think that that would be uh, difficult to do, uh, Your Honor. But that is almost the same, at least in some states, as getting a new trial anyway. Uh, it, if, if we find out after the fact that the juror was biased, then in some states that's, that's a reason for a new trial and the discretion of the trial court anyway. Uh, that that, uh, that may not, be. The, the point is you're not giving much substance to the, the well, I think we're giving — we're respecting its fundamental — its fundamental purpose, Your Honor, which is to assist — to help achieve the goal of uh, selecting an impartial jury. What is the law there? That's why I've been trying to get out. I mean, my initial instinct would be that if a defendant doesn't get the jury that the law entitles him to, that's an error. And you'd normally think it was harmful because you, have, you can't say uh, honestly that it was harmless. It's the jury that's supposed to decide. Okay. I expect it would work out that way. I've never looked into it. How has it worked out? Generally, for errors like uh, the error you described before, where um, the judge erroneously, uh, mistakenly excuses a juror in, in the belief that the juror is disqualified for cause, where the judge uh, mistakenly substitutes a qualified alternate for one of the jurors, where the judge uh, places one alternate on the jury uh, instead of another, the courts have generally uh, looked at that uh, for harmlessness and not required automatic reversal. Indeed, even in the case of jurors that don't satisfy say, All right. In other words, they have often said you don't get a new trial. Yes. Okay. Yes. And even in the case of jurors that don't meet the statutory uh, requirements, the Federal Courts of Appeals um, have, have held that uh, unless a biased juror sits, um, a new trial is not required. But, but don't some of those courts, uh, rather than focusing on the uh, qualifications of the particular juror, look to the, how close the case was? Uh, the, the harmless error analysis, in, in the, there are sort of a lot of different scenarios of types of violations. And the standard that, that they use is not clear in all of them. Um, in the ones that in the cases that uh, I found that involve the seating of jurors that don't meet the federal statutory requirements, usually they involve felons um, that uh, didn't reveal that they were felons. The courts have looked to the biased juror standard. Some courts have done that. Others have looked to whether it affects the verdict. They haven't been exactly clear uh, how, you, uh, how you determine that. But, well, uh, that's because you, there's no way to tell. Well, uh, I, I think that, that even if you had a standard that uh, said to look to uh, whether there was an effect on the verdict, you could tell precisely the way the um, Illinois Supreme Court applied uh, Nader here, if no rational jury could have acquitted, then you know the substitution of one rational impartial juror for another didn't have an effect on the outcome. And that doesn't violate the Sixth Amendment to do that, Your Honor, because the underlying right, uh, the underlying error doesn't violate the Sixth Amendment. Yeah, but a jury and is a fundamental protection of individual liberty. And in your analysis, you're having a judge decide what the jury No, no Your Honor, uh, as Justice Ginsburg pointed out before, um, 
the petitioner here got a determination of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt on every element of the offense from a fair and impartial jury um, that was properly instructed. So we're not having a judge uh, substitute that at all. The judge is making the determination that any, a juror that should have been seated would act like the juror who was sitting. That is true, but the Sixth Amendment doesn't give the defendant the right to any particular jury. It doesn't give the defendant the right to a jury that's been selected in compliance with every jot and tittle of state law. And therefore, if the underlying error, um, as the, the underlying error here, where you get a, a denial of a peremptory, um, where a juror seated um, that even though that violated state law, um, uh, assumably here, um, that uh, that um, that doesn't amount to a Sixth Amendment violation. And if the if the defendant got his Sixth Amendment rights at trial, then the way you conduct harmless error review can't violate his Sixth Amendment rights. He already got them. And so um, it can be done, and it doesn't violate the Sixth Amendment. There are any number of uh, alternatives that we can adopt in ruling for your position. Um, if we were to rule for your position, what do you think is the most straightforward rationale? Well, I, I, I mean, we would obviously like to have sort of alternative rulings that, that do both, but I think the most logical way to approach the case is to decide um, whether uh, there was a violation of the Constitution uh, here, and because there wasn't one, um, to say that state law uh, governs the harmless error analysis. Thank you, Counsel. Uh, Mr. Levin, you have two minutes remaining. Your Honor, the uh, Hicks versus Oklahoma case is a very important case as far as the due process right to a lawful adjudicator, because there we had an unlawful sentencer. So I would ask that the Court consider that. That's a state case involving an unlawful adjudicator. It, uh, so we do have a due process violation under that case. As to the Sixth Amendment issue, uh, the Illinois Supreme Court did act inconsistently with the Sixth Amendment as far as uh, its manner of conducting harmless error review, because harmless error analysis is impossible to conduct in this situation, because in order to do that, we have to examine what the particular jury would have done had it not been for the error. And the particular jury in this case must be out, because uh, the particular jury, the panel as a whole, is illegally constituted. And the, uh, in, in, it's impossible to conduct harmless error analysis. Why is that any harder than harmless error analysis that's conducted all the time? For example, evidence is erroneously uh, excluded from the trial, and, and you ask, uh, was that harmless error? That you have to, there has to be speculation about how this jury uh, would have received the additional evidence. What, what's the difference? Because in that situation, we're looking at what the particular jury, how the particular jury in that case would have resolved the matter had the erroneously admitted evidence not been admitted. But the court has no, has no inside information about the dynamics of that particular jury. It's just, it's deciding what a rational jury would do, what a, what a, a, a standard jury would do. Whether that particular jury would have reached the same verdict, which we can't do in this case. No, but, but how does the court know anything particular about the jury when it conducts that harmless error analysis? It doesn't. But it could look at the record uh, as a whole and determine whether or not 
the, the particular jury that rendered the verdict would have done the same thing had the uh, erroneously emitted evidence uh, not, not, been, not been introduced. And in this case, we have a very dis- different situation because we have an illegal adjudicator, and we can't determine whether that adjudicator would have uh, resolved the case differently had it not been for the error because it's impossible to assess because of the uh, — um, the particular adjudicator that resolved this case in the present case was illegally composed. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted.